Welcome to the Loma Linda University Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you will be blessed by the message. Kids are the best. I mean the best. Out of the mouths of babes, Scripture says. Really appreciate that. So some years ago, it's been enough years ago to cause a little concern because Virginia... Brazier wrote a verse that applied then, and as I read the verse today, I think it applies even more today. So the world has not changed. Here's what she wrote. This is the age of the half-read page, and the quick hash and the mad dash, the bright night with the nerves tight, the plane hop and the brief stop, the lamp tan in a short span, the big shot in a soft spot, and the brain strain and the heart pain and the cat naps till the spring snaps and the fun's done. I think it was supposed to be funny, but it wasn't that funny when I read it because it reflects so many of the realities of life. And it explains why so many of us are in anguish with anxiety. But it's not just anxiety. It's also fear. A writer named Jack Handy wrote this. There used to be this bully who would demand my lunch money every day. Since I was smaller, I would give it to him. Then I decided to fight back. I started taking karate lessons. But the karate lesson guy said I had to pay him $5 a lesson. So I just went back to paying the bully. Doesn't that really describe what a lot of us have done with our fears is we've just kind of gone back to paying the bully? It's just so hard to face those fears, to confront that anxiety. We're in a series right now entitled simply, You Are His Personal Concern. It's that phrase drawn from 1 Peter 5, 7, the J.B. Phillips translation. That phrase that says you can cast the full weight of your anxiety on him because you are his personal concern. So this is our third week. The first week we looked at the fact that a firm foundation of a good and a gracious God that cares for us, of whom we don't have to be afraid, is the foundation on which we can stand when we do battle with fear and anxiety. Last week we focused on that that, that phrase, you are his personal concern, but we notice that many times the, the way God chooses to place that personal concern in our lives is through the work, the presence, and the love of others. And this week we're back again to take one more step. This week I want to write just a sentence on the board that I think captures all that we're trying to say today and captures it maybe in an adequate way. And that simple sentence is this. God wants our faith, not our fear. God wants our faith, not our fear. Now, we read that, and we say, okay, we can buy into that. I suppose if we ran that up, in the, up the flagpole, most people here today would salute. Yeah, we agree with that. So we can say, amen, praise the Lord, and go home. Except, except there's a real danger, certainly for us as preachers and maybe for us as worshipers, to say things that are true but trite. Say things that can be put on a bumper sticker. 
And yet we end up asking that question, like we referenced last week, asking that question, how? Okay, so that may be true, but how does that work? I mean, we can say about this, after all, that the concept of faith in the Bible goes much beyond just believing something. We say, well, faith is confessing our belief in, for example, Jesus Christ. Absolutely, that's true. That is faith. But faith doesn't stop there biblically. Faith issues forth in action, in doing something. Isn't that the whole argument of the book of James in the New Testament? James says, okay, so you're telling me you, you believe. You believe. Well, that's fine. That's great. But hey, the devils believe and tremble. I want to see what you believe because my prop- proposition, says James, is that what you truly have faith in, what you truly believe, is what you're doing. So it's an active word. That's the first thing we have to recognize. But what does that look like? So I want to go to a story, well-known Bible story. Some could argue that maybe this is the best-known Bible story in the Old Testament. My purpose is not to look at the entire story, but to look at one piece of it that speaks specifically to what we're talking about today. It's a story that ends in a hard place and ends in a good place, at least as far as Israel is concerned. It's the story of David and Goliath. Now, I want to tell you how I always pictured this in my mind when I was a kid growing up, whether I was listening to it from mom reading us the Bible story before bedtime or whether I heard about it in Sabbath school or wherever I heard about it. This is how I pictured it. I pictured the forces of Israel and the Philistine forces facing off the giant shouting curses and laying down challenges, everybody running for their life, about the time that David comes doodly bopping into camp as a kid, and he looks at all these people running. He looks out there, what, 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 what are you scared of? I'll take him out. So he goes, he gets five stones, and then I read over in Chronicles that Goliath had some brothers, so maybe David is saying, brother number one, number two, number three, number four, and this one is for you. And then he takes him out, and when he has vanquished the giant, he stands back and says, well, you know, bears, lions, giants, what's the difference? (laughs) Sounds like the NFC. (laughs) That's how I pictured it. And then I did something that I don't necessarily recommend, at least not if you don't want to remove a little bit of the tarnish from your Bible heroes. I actually read the story. I read the text. And I thought, okay, I've got to revise the way I always thought this was. So we're going to join the story in process. This has been going on for 40 days already. David is showing up now. The giant is screaming. 1 Samuel 17, verse 20. Early in the morning, David left the flock in the care of a shepherd. This is back home. Loaded up and set out as Jesse. Jesse was his father. Had directed. His father sending him to find out how the boys are. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle position, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines, facing each other. David left his things with the keeper of the supplies, ran to the battle lines, and asked how his, his brothers how they were. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance, and David heard it. Whenever the Israelites saw the man, they all fled from him in great fear. Notice that last phrase. That word all is a pretty comprehensive word. Bear that in mind. So now they're hiding out. 
And while they're hiding out, apparently, a conversation unfolds. The next verse says this. Now, the Israelites had been saying, do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his family from taxes in Israel. And David, I'm sure this is what the Hebrew says, says, say what? It is then that he gets interested in the giant. Now, this will take us down a trail we're not going to go into today, but it's worth reading the story and following that. Three times they tell him what's going to be given. Twice he asks about it. That's what motivates him to step up. He says, great wealth, no IRS, the princess, I can do it. And they say, have you seen that giant? He says, have you seen that princess? (laughs) (laughs) Now, back to the story, the next verse. David asked the men standing near him, pay attention to that line, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Now, I may not be the sharpest knife in the drawer, But I've noticed this. The last line of verse 24 says, All the men of Israel fled. The first line of verse 26 says, David spoke to the men standing near him. You with me? If everyone ran and he can still talk to people standing near him, goodbye to the way I heard it. David ran with them. He's young. He may have outran them. I don't know. He ran. He's in hiding with them as he starts hearing what's going to happen. His interest is piqued. He finally says, I can do it. And that's reported to Saul. One more passage from 1 Samuel 17, verse 31. When when what David said was overheard and reported to Saul, Saul sent for him. David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. In other words... Never fear, David's here. (laughs) Saul replied, you're not able to go out and fight against this Philistine and fight him. You're only a young man. He's been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, now this is a very important statement. This is a part of who he is. We know that because he not only says this to Saul, he will say the same thing almost word for word to Goliath when he faces him at the height of danger. So this is a part of who David is. David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off the sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by his hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of the Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and God be with you. Now, what we have, I would suggest to you, is someone who has fear, but who acts 
in faith, which is where we desire to live. But once again, the question is, how? How do we occupy that space? How do we live in that place where David was? So I want to share with you a very simple model. I heard it from John Townsend. John Townsend, a well-known speaker, author, writer, psychologist, coach. I think this simple model will help us understand not only David, but understand how we can live in that space. So I'm not a math person. Just know that right up front. But I'm going to show you what might amount to a fraction, as it were. Okay? So this at the top, how long has it been since you've been in math class? This, I better be right, is called a numerator. Is that right? Amen? All right, good. I'm feeling better. Okay, so the numerator is... All right, I misspelled a word a week or two ago, and I heard about it. People couldn't listen to the sermon because the word was misspelled. All right, so responsibilities. This is part of our life, the responsibilities that we have. Our mortgage payment is due. The rent payment is due. We need to buy shoes for the kids. I have boards coming up. The issues at the office right now are closing in on me. There's so much stress and so much pressure that's taking place. Those are the responsibilities of our lives, whatever those might be. That's the top part. The bottom part is our resources. Our resources. This is what we have to help us meet the responsibilities the resources on which we can draw. Now they tell me, in math, if you have a fraction that looks like that, you've got a whole. Because one over one is what? One. See, you're good at math too. So this is whole. What that says to this model is this. If your resources are sufficient to your responsibilities, you're whole. You can be at much greater peace. You're not wrestling with anxiety. You're not fighting with fear. You're at peace. However, if you're in a situation where your responsibilities outweigh or even far outweigh your resources, that's the picture of anxiety. Just picture yourself. I've got a $2,000 mortgage payment. I just lost my job. I do not have the resources to meet that. And what happens to the anxiety? It skyrockets. The fear grips at you. Whatever it is that you're feeling, I, I, I've got boards coming up in two months. I haven't had the time, and I haven't taken the time I have had to adequately study for them. Now I can't even sleep at night because I'm so anxious about what's about to happen. I don't have the resources to meet the responsibilities. That's the picture of fear and anxiety. So if you find yourself in that situation, it seems like, I don't know if they're the only two ways, but certainly they're the two principal ways to deal with that and to bring them back into alignment is either to diminish your responsibilities or to increase your resources. Is that a fair statement? Absolutely. But here's the challenge. Here's the problem. Especially in a congregation like this one. In this congregation... Across our different services in the modern anthem space, here in the sanctuary space, 
We have a lot of students. Students often do not have the ability to shift or to diminish their responsibilities. I mean, think about it. If you're a student or if you're not, think back to when you were a student. How well did it work out when you went to the teacher and said, you know, we have an exam in two days. I haven't had time to study. I just, just haven't. So could I, I know the others are going to take it. Could I take mine in two weeks? That'll give me time. How did that work out for you? Or a student, now you graduated and you are drowning in student loan debt. You're thinking, how am I ever going to meet that responsibility? So then you move into the professional world. You're head of a department up at the medical center. You're partner in a law practice. And you realize the responsibility of so much is resting on your shoulders. And you're beginning to feel like, I don't have the resources to adequately meet that. Certainly not emotionally. I'm, I'm awake at night. I'm anxious. I'm fearful. What do I do? The truth is, sometimes we can't change the responsibilities Do you know who else couldn't do that? A guy named David. David's responsibilities were named Goliath. David could have spent the night thinking, I hope that guy shrinks two feet by tomorrow. That's not going to happen. I hope he doesn't come out with all those weapons because that's not going to happen. I hope tomorrow's a good day. I hope he's not in a bad mood tomorrow because when he's in a bad mood, he had no control over that. None. So where did David focus? He focused right here. What are the resources I have? And he concluded, the resource I have is God in my life, the way God has been with me in the past, the way God has delivered in the past, the way he will deliver in the future. That is where my focus will be. And we see him give those two stellar speeches One to a king, one to a foe. God is with... I mean, David is a kid. And he stands there, not unafraid, but filled with faith. So again, my question. That's wonderful. But what might that look like in my life? How can this take on flesh and walk with me throughout the week? What does that look like? Well, I want to focus a bit on this issue of resources emotional resources. What can we do to increase our resources and increase our sense of well-being, of peace, of tranquility, of serenity that will in and of itself give us greater strength to face the sometimes unchanging responsibilities of life? So about two or three weeks ago, Anita and I, and we ran into my colleague Jamie Stadola there. We attended a counseling conference so we hung out together a lot. There was a major conference, about 7,000 counselors there, a, lot, a Christian counseling session experience. And I went to everything I could find that I could fit in by way of breakout sessions to ones dealing with anxiety. I did because I have a personal interest investment in that. And I also knew this series was coming, so I wanted to, wanted to get everything I could. One of the sessions I went to, a psychologist named Gregory Jantz, Not a Seventh-day Adventist. As far as I knew, never heard of Seventh-day Adventist. As far as I know, never heard of something that we historically have called the health message. This man dealing with anxiety. 
stood up there and basically said, if you want to be at a better place, he didn't use these terms because he wasn't working from this model. But if he had, he would say, if you want to build your resources, you got to watch carefully and limit what goes in here and what goes in here and here. Because that will affect deeply how you feel. He said, again, using this terminology, if you want to build your resources, you need fresh air, sunlight, healthy relationships, drink a lot of water. I'm thinking, man, that sounds familiar. Where have I heard that before? And then he said, I had a client. He said, I had a client who was so anxious, he was like jittery, just so anxious. So I'm talking with this client, and I don't remember how, but somehow the issue of coffee came up. He said, how much coffee do you drink? And the client told him. Dr. Jan said, oh, my goodness, you drink that many cups of coffee a day? And the client said, no, I drink that many pots of coffee a day. Pots. I'm not a nutritionist. I'm not a physician. I'm not a scientist or a researcher. But if I was there, I might be on safe terrain to say, you know, you may want to ease off on that gas pedal a little bit. He said he was jittery, just filled with anxiety. He was basically saying you can't do that and expect to be at peace. You have, in fact, he went on to say, when we get anxious, when we get fearful, we tend to gravitate to sweet and smooth foods. And I'm like, come on, did you have to get personal in front of all these people? Sweet, you know, ice cream, frozen yogurt. So let's stand for the benediction. No, I'm just, we tend to gravitate toward those kinds of things, he said, but they ultimately, unless they're in moderation, don't help us build this. Curious, isn't it? We also have to be aware of what goes in here and what goes in here. Because the truth is, what we hear and what we see can either help us or hurt us. I went, I don't remember, I didn't count it specifically, but I went on about a two to three year fast from the news. I just stopped watching it altogether. I, it was embarrassing. I had no idea what was going on in the world. I'd be in a group and people would say, you know what's happening here and what's happening there? And I'd be thinking, don't ask me because um, I don't know. You know what? I was ignorant and at peace. At peace. I broke the fast, unfortunately, the wrong time. Now I'm thinking, okay, I may need to moderate this yet again. Because you know what the tendency is? I get home from a day at work. I'm stressed out. My mind's been working all day. And I just, you know what I want to do? I want to collapse under the couch and do this. That's what I want to do. Do you know we were on a trip traveling through Egypt, kind of a backwater town in Egypt. Never heard of the place? Not many people live there. We passed what could best be described as a very humble abode. Two older men sitting out in front on ramshackle chairs, sitting there. Do you know what they were doing? <laughs> and I said, have mercy. It's not just us. 
But here's the problem. When we do that, when we wake up doing that, we get on social media, by the time we're done with that, we're filled with envy and inadequacy because of everybody else's airbrushed, photo-retouched lives. We're feeling inadequate. We're angry because of what's happening in the news. And then we're ready for the day. We're feeling inferior, we're feeling insecure, and we're ticked off. And now let's go to work. <laughs> we have just depleted our resources. And please be clear, I am not saying we should not use social media, we should not enjoy entertainment. That would be untrue. That's not how I feel. But I do think we ought to be wise in how we consume it and limit it to healthy realities. Otherwise, what could be our resources end up depleting our resources. So the English language is a curious thing. Think of this. If I write this word on the board, moral, we know what it means. If I say she's a moral person, it means she's a person with an ethical core, ethical fiber. She knows what she stands for. She's willing to stand for it in the face of challenge and difficulty. That's a moral person. But if I add this simple free prefix, a, to it, suddenly I have flipped the meaning. Now this is a person who has no morality. Maybe not interested in it at all. Doesn't have any ethical or any ethical fiber. It just flipped the meaning. Curious how that works. So what about this word? You run across this word lately. We don't use it a lot. It's the word muse. Muse. What does it mean to muse? Well, to muse is to ponder, to think, to consider, to contemplate to imagine, to dream, to pray. That's what it means to muse. I read a writer recently talking about these kinds of things who said most of our problems, meaning our emotional problems, most of our problems come from the inability to sit alone in a room and think. That's hard for me. Muse. Do you know what? I was thinking this week, when I was a kid growing up, and we'd go visit my grandmother, and my cousins, uncle, aunts would come, we got together. Do you know what we did? We sat on the, out on the back porch, the back lawn, sat together, and heaven help us, talked. Talked. It grew out of experiences like this. Now, you take that and you add that little prefix to it, and suddenly it changes the meaning. It says, I turn off my thinking. I stop thinking. And when I consider that, I start thinking of Neil Postman's book two or three decades ago entitled, Amusing Ourselves to Death. It's a risk. And I am not against amusement or entertainment. I am simply saying we have to be thoughtful how we approach it because certain realities can add to our resource bank and certain realities that could add to it deplete it because of how we use it. Or what about what Jantz said about getting outside and exercising? When I was in a graduate degree in marriage and family therapy in a secular university, we had a teacher, a professor we really liked, probably the student's favorite. He kind of lived an open book life, shared a lot with us. We connected with him well. 
He came into class one evening. We knew he wrestled with anxiety and depression. And he said, when I woke up this morning, the last thing I felt like doing was moving. I just wanted to lie there. And so after a bit, I got up, I went out, and I jogged three or four miles. I wanted to isolate. I didn't want to connect with anybody. So I called up a friend, and we went to coffee together, and we sat and talked. It's interesting. That's been about three decades ago. I still remember that. It had an impact on me. Because it said, sometimes the way to build our resources to live in faith is to take action when we don't feel like it. In fact, I've come to asking myself a question that I have found personally to be very helpful. This is imperfect, but it has helped me on many occasions. When I'm in one of those moments, like what my professor described, I'm needing to exercise, I'm needing to connect, oh, I don't want to do that. I, mean, I ask myself this question. If I don't do it, or if I actually do it, at the end of which will I feel better? And I usually know the answer. And sometimes, not always, by the grace of God, I then take that step. And invariably, at the end, I find that I have built resources into my life. That's David. I have a huge challenge out there, a major responsibility. I'm scared, but I have a resource, and that's going to be my focus. You know, it strikes me, it strikes me that this is like the serenity prayer. Have you thought about that? God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. We spend a lot of our life trying to change things that we can't change. And it just builds our frustration and our anxiety. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. The courage to change the things I can. I've seen people, you've seen people, who have made major changes even up here, who have sold houses and moved, who have changed jobs, changed careers because they've concluded this cannot change, but this situation can't stay the same. So I'm going to make a major step that will bring me into alignment so I can live a more peaceful life. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom, the wisdom to know the difference. He's just a lad from all we can ascertain, just a lad, but he knew the difference. He knew what it meant. He knew where to focus, and we still tell his story today. So for you this week, especially if you struggle with the anxiety or fear that comes, that comes from being misaligned, then this week, I hope you not only pray, but I pray that you act in faith the realities of that prayer. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, 
the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference through the grace of Jesus Christ our Lord. Gracious God, might that be our prayer, might that be our choice this week, that we might know the peace that comes from being aligned with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Find more podcasts, videos, church events, and how you can support the Loma Linda University Church at lluc.org.